0: What is up everybody welcome back to another episode of the rewired soul podcast it's your host Chris Boutet, and yeah we're talking to another great author today and his name is Nathan Bomey he's been a journalist for a while and he recently released a book called bridge builders and I've been waiting for it for months and finally uh, his publisher got back to me and they sent me a copy of it and I and I loved it so I'm super glad that I got to talk to him um But I I wanted to release this episode today because all this week we've been talking about, uh, you know, signaling and uh, moral grandstanding. And then the conversation I had with Megan Dahl about, you know, just how things have changed and, you know, a lot of the arguments and fights that happen online and everything like that. Well, Nathan's book, Bridge Builders, I think is perfect to finish up the week because it's all about. You guessed it, uh, <laughs> Building Bridges with People We Disagree With. And it's such a great book. And Nathan and I, we talk uh, about, you know, how how certain organizations are trying to build br- bridges where there's, you know, issues like racism, political polarization, and we even discuss some of the issues with journalism and how journalism has changed and you know what journalists have to kind of do to be ethical, you know, with the way the whole landscape and the business model has changed, you know. So, it's a really really great book and I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to talk to him about it so we dive into all that stuff in this episode Um, so I will be linking down below uh, his social media as well as the book so make sure you grab a copy and if you haven't yet make sure you check down there too because there are links to my social media at The Rewired Soul over on Instagram and Twitter and this was also a, a video recording I've been doing more of those lately so this will be up on the YouTube channel The Rewired Soul so if you prefer seeing beautiful faces like myself and nathan bomey you can go over to the rewired soul youtube channel it'll be up there as well all right but anyways make sure you're following me on social media i just announced the five guests who will be up next week and there are some more great books coming and more great authors so make sure you're following me on instagram and twitter but anyways without further ado here's my conversation with nathan bomey about his brand new book bridge builders Right. Hello, Nathan. How are you doing this morning? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I love the book. So yeah, obviously today we're talking about your new book, Bridge Builders. And yeah, there's it's such an important book because there's so much polarization going on and it has been. That's actually when I got into politics. <laughs> uh, like, you know, when Trump got elected, I'm like, wow, we are really divided. So what kind of uh, inspired this book and like made you want to, you know, sit down and just you know, cover all this stuff and do all the research and investigating and all that. Yeah. I mean, well, two things. It
1: My second book was called After the Fact. It was about the erosion of truth and why you're mm. so immersed in misinformation, how that gave rise to Donald Trump. The conditions were there for him to capitalize on and, and end up capturing the White House, not necessarily the other way around, although obviously he exacerbated the situation so i walked away from that book with this you know really deep and disturbing uh, belief that we are so uh immersed in toxic polarization that how can we possibly do anything about it and i said Mm -hmm. i've got to go up to accepting the status quo and so there's that and then also the fact that just as a national journalist you know or really any journalist you see on a daily basis how divided people are, whether it's politics, race, mm-hmm. religion, class, culture, any area, you, you see it on a regular basis, of course, also occasionally targeted with criticism from people who don't uh, trust us and are, are sort of subject to this culture of polarization. So those two factors led me to say, I, I want to be part of the solution in some yeah. small way to try to go out and start to, to meet people who are trying to bring people together Despite their
0: differences, yeah, no one of the one of my favorite parts of the book is like you you went in the trenches and like I felt uncomfortable during some of those situations, <laughs> and I, I want to dive into that. But uh, yeah, you just you, you touched on uh, something I, I really I'm really interested in, like you working in journalism and you know misinformation being an issue. How much do you see media playing into the the problems we have? With polarization, like I'm, I'm always thinking, you know, uh, you know, we're always talking about biases and everything like that. And, and it's really hard. It's really hard to just keep all of that out and be purely objective. Yeah. But with misinformation and biases, how do you see that, you know, playing a role just from the position of journalist or, you know, uh, yeah. news media and all that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, I really felt strongly like I couldn't write a book about how people are so divided without training the lens on myself as a journalist mm. training the lens on my own industry and, and you know it's like I want to start with saying I will always defend journalism against, you know, false accusations of fake news, yeah. you know, which are so damaging to us because I do believe them trying to, you know, do a good job of of serving as, as you know, authenticators of information and telling authentic stories. But I also think we can't look at, if if we're going to write the obituary on truth, we can't, I I think that there is going to have to be a few lines about the role that professional journalists may have played in causing that ailment, Mm -hmm. you know, that led to that. And I think, you know, certainly hyper-partisan media have obviously been a significant catalyst in the uh, erosion of truth and the rise of misinformation and the further division of Americans, but you know, that's almost sort of obvious and self-evident. I wanted to take even a closer look to say, how about those of us as more mainstream journalists have mm-hmm. maybe just in small ways uh, ended up sort of contributing to a little sensationalism here, a little sensationalism there. Maybe the headline gets a little bit, you know, out of mm-hmm. whack. The story gets a little bit too hyper-focused on uh, conflict and not quite as focused on solutions that I think is really what people are so hungry for. And so I, I think you can't talk about, have this conversation without at least acknowledging that, yeah, journalism has played a role in contributing mm-hmm. to divisiveness. And so we also have to ask, how can we play a role in sort of, uh, you know, contributing towards some sort of solution as well?
0: Yeah. And, and here's something that I'm always thinking about. And I'm, I'm really curious your thoughts on it, because it seems like there's this, this balance uh, that we have to find between like human nature and journalists trying to keep their jobs right so obviously there's been this big switch towards digital and you know with twitter moving at light speed and things being shared on facebook and all this you have to grab someone's attention which means like i i've been a youtube creator for years now and i realized when i kind of did those sensational clickbaity titles you get people in so it's like You know you can make it dull like like for example you could put like hey two people from different parties had a very calm conversation but who's gonna click on it so so it almost feels like part of human nature is that we're more likely to click on something that kind of sparks some of that so where's where's that balance between a journalist's responsibility to not be so sensationalist and be mindful of the headlines but also knowing about the human nature and getting people to click and read and be interested. How do you, yeah. how do you balance that?
1: No, I think you're right. I think that we can't ignore the fact that you know, the business model of journalism has completely changed and it's not going back to what it used to be. So as much as we'd like to maybe live in a world in which um, you know, the, the really sort of nitty gritty journalism of days gone by maybe is all that you needed to do to get in that people sort of subscribe just because that was part of life. You know, now it's, you got to work a little bit harder to get people's attention pretty clearly Mm -hmm. to your point. And so I I think, you know, the, what I learned in writing this book and talking to some journalists who are on the ground, trying to sort of tell authentic stories is that, you know, they're choosing nuance over caricature, but there are ways Hmm. in which to do it in a very, a very authentic and engaging way. I think that Americans are pretty smart now and are actually pretty fed up with sensationalism. I think that they yeah. are, are, they want that authenticity. And if you look at a pro- approach by uh, some organizations like the Milwaukee journal Sentinel, for example, which is part of the company that owns my employer USA disclosure, but they, they actually s- stopped doing most of their like hot take journalism where they mm. were, you know, just putting out these, uh, these controversial headlines or, you know, uh, you know, big opinions. And they started to focus more on solutions. And what they found Mm -hmm. was that their traffic actually went through the roof. Why? Because we got plenty of hot takes like that is in full supply. In some ways, you're cutting against the grain now if you're doing the opposite. And so Mm -hmm. I think that there is demand for that sort of content because there's so little of it. And I think. Um, but it is, it's difficult. And I think there's always going to be a temptation to, mm-hmm. you know, trend toward the sensational. But I think the encouraging thing is that Americans really do want something mm. that looks different.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, like, I look at my own personal experiences, uh, you know, as you as you probably know, I, I read a ton. And I'm always looking for books that, you know, I, I, I was talking to someone the other day, and I, I was like, I'm looking for books where the author will argue with themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can find one that it's just all one directional. And, you know, I, you know, it's human nature to, love confirmation bias and something that agrees with us but sometimes what I do is I'll actually read books on two different extremes you know uh and and you know even as somebody who's you know very uh liberal leaning I'll follow people on the right and read their stuff I'm like because these people will point out something that I might be missing even if I don't agree with some of their ideology or policy or you know whatever so I can definitely see you know that that more people are kind of looking for just more information and conversation and all all that, Yeah. Um, yeah and, and speaking and speaking of conversation, like you start out the book uh, and I, I kind of mentioned how like some of it gets uncomfortable. <laughs> so there's that organization I wanted you to uh, kind of yeah. tell people about, uh, Be yeah. the Bridge. I think I yeah. saw it or something similar in a docu- documentary not long ago, yeah. but can you kind of talk about that organization or that group and what they're doing to kind of try to bridge the divide yeah. uh, with these racial issues that we're dealing with, especially since yeah. last year, no,
1: it's a really uh, cool group led by a woman named Latasha Morrison. She's a black, uh, a black woman, American Christian woman who has. Uh, really gained a lot of traction on her Facebook group. She got tens of thousands of mm. members who actually commit to, for example, they join the Facebook group and they can't say anything for three months, I think is, is the rule. And so literally you have to listen yeah. for months before you can actually speak, which is one quality of bridge building, by the way, you listen first and speak second. But, um, but she is, is going from actually church to church in a lot of cases white evangelical congregations having very difficult conversations about racial issues and about how racism has been interwoven in the history of the American church. And she's trying to have these extremely difficult conversations with people who may be likely to be resistant to them, but she's actually building these bridges sort of from the inside in the sense Mm. that you know she's she's trying to use sort of some of their similarities to say listen i'm i believe in the same god you believe i believe in the same bible i read the same bible you you do mm-hmm. but you have to understand my experience as a as a black woman in this country and say that we need to talk about the history of of race racial relations and racism in this country and we can do that in a way that doesn't this shame or humiliation but does focus on accountability. And there is mm-hmm. a distinction there. You know, I think a lot of times we feel like if we talk about things that happened in the past, we have to shame other people. But actually mm-hmm. she's saying, listen, no, let's lament. That's the word she uses is, is lament, mm-hmm. not shame. And she draws a really just dis- real distinction there, which I think makes a big difference as she's connecting with people who are otherwise the media tell us are not, uh, not receptive to these sorts of conversations. So I think the way you approach it can really make a big difference.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it, it's it's something it's it's interesting uh, about the you know you're not even allowed to speak like you gotta just listen for three months yeah. like I re- I remember you know uh, when I first got sober back in 2012 and started going into meetings and people would say like hey you don't have anything to say you just need to listen for a mm-hmm. while and that's mm-hmm. kind of how how I learned you know to just shut my mouth because you know yeah. a lot of us our ego tells us that we know everything we're right and da 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 and it kind of yeah. shuts us down from even taking that information in and, and, you know, a lot of us don't even take the time to sit back and question what we think and what we know, or we think we know and, and all that. So, you know, with, with what her organization is doing and uh, you know, through through your research for the book, you you also mentioned uh, Robin D'Angelo's book, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, White Fragility, and and she could be quite polarizing. And yeah. I, I recently wrote like an in-depth piece on her on her. Yeah, newest... I read your piece. Great piece, by the oh, way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah like yeah. I it feels it so you you probably know what I'm talking about. It feels like there's yeah. a lack of nuance. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah, you know, in, in my opinion, her her primary argument is that we don't take criticism very well, right? right. And, and you were kind of just mentioning that when she goes church to church and like, hey, there's a way to do this with a conversation without shaming. So yeah. do you see a difference between like Robin D'Angelo's approach and then what, like, uh, you know, Be The Bridge is trying mm-hmm. to do? Do you see yeah. a difference or are people yeah. interpreting it different? Yeah. Like what have you seen? There? Well, you, you've read what fragility more recently
1: than I have. So I don't want to do a full scale book, review, but I would, <laughs> yeah. I would say it's been a couple years since I read it. But I would say that what I appreciated the most from the book was that she is saying, you know, white people need to accept the fact that, you know, we we have to have conversations or we have to um, acknowledge uh that this is a conversation we have to have. Now, I, I think the question is how do we have that conversation? I don't know if I agree with everything she says mm-hmm. about that, but I think one of the really important things, um, about building bridges is that we can accept the fact that we have differences. So even if I have some differences with the way Robin D'Angelo wants to approach, you know, addressing racial relations, I can still say, I can, I, I appreciate some, you know, this here or that there and mm-hmm. I, I i could see that in the piece that you wrote as well i i thought you did a really wonderful job engaging with it and uh with her their with new book is is what your piece was about primarily but uh but no it's it's you know again like i also look at for example ibram x Kendi kind of similar sort of mm-hmm. genre in the book um how to be an anti-racist where you know i think there's a lot in there that maybe you don't agree with everything but one of the things that i really appreciate that he says is that racism is more of a spectrum, that you're not really racist or not racist. It's sort yeah. of like a spectrum. And I think that that is something we have to, avoid. people like myself, of course, have to really embrace to say, it's not, you're, you're either racist and you remember the KKK or you're not, right? And you're this perfect person. You know, it's like there yeah. is middle ground and yeah. there's a spectrum. and we have and, and, and once you understand that, maybe the shame of the conversation is is gone and we can say, well, let's, how do we get better? You know, how do we move, move in the, the right direction? And that's the conversation we need to be having.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's something, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. Like I'm always trying to think in spectrums, like, you know, my background's in mental health and black and white thinking is such a major issue, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, just mm-hmm. like in in interpersonal relationships, it's like, oh, this person either loves me or hates me, right? It's like, eh, yeah. they might like me, it might be in between, you know, whatever. But I also see that when it comes to these like uh, issues like uh, racial issues or, you know, whatever it yeah. is, it's like, it's not, it's not always just black and white and just yeah. racist or not racist. It's like, hey, you might be very, very, Great in like 90% of the areas, but this one thing you said, you might not even know that you're being offensive. You know what I mean? And And let me let me interject and say Mm -hmm. I agree with you. And and I
1: think this is why, for example, so-called maybe progressive people can't be exempt from conversations about things like race, you know. And I think that's one thing Robin D'Angelo does a good job of. Mm -hmm. It's like you you think because you have this progressive card, you're somehow exempt from this conversation, but the reality is. A lot of times, okay, you could be really progressive on this issue, but actually really regressive on this issue, yeah. you know, and I think that that's nuance, you know, and that's what's difficult. We don't not live in a culture that embraces nuance, we live in that culture that embraces caricature and labeling mm-hmm. people, and the problem is people are complex, you can't put them in a box, if you do mm-hmm. that, you are not fair to their complexity as humans, and mm-hmm. so... It's so hard and i think bridge builders understand that you know they are not ignorant of ignorance in the sense that they understand ignorance is there but mm-hmm. they view people of difference differently you know so they're not going to view them in the way other people view them and they do believe that people are capable of change because they've seen it happen before mm-hmm.
0: yeah and so i i I have a question for you because I it's something that I've been working on for years and I imagine you have a lot of experience with this, but it's just getting uncomfortable and having uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. Um, again, just my mental health background. Like, you know, I've had to learn to be comfortable in the uncomfortable and yeah. Uh, you know, I think we have, uh, you know, defenses that pop up when we get into these uncomfortable, you know, situations, you know, it's just like biases and cognitive dissonance and like our, our, our tribalism and, you know, even yeah. if we're talking politics and it's, and it's feels like that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to get into this nuance. So I'm wondering what what are your tips or tools that you use? Cause I'm sure while doing this book and like meeting new people, I'm sure someone said something that you just wanted to snap, right? (laughs) Like, how do you chill? How do you sit with that uncomfortable listening, uh, feeling and open up and be receptive to their ideas and their views?
1: Well, I think it's one of the most challenging things for us as humans, you know, to embrace that. But I think, it starts with understanding, you know, what, what Martin Luther King said, which was, we are caught together in this inescapable web of mutuality in the sense that, or I think you said inescapable network of mutuality in the sense that our destinies are interwoven. If I'm not getting uncomfortable, I'm not growing. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's actually not really about the other person. It's, I want to progress. I have to help you progress. And I, I think we as Americans kind of get that, you know, because we understand that this country is built on a, on a system that really just simply won't work unless we're working together. And so I think it's, it's actually sort of a pretty logical thing to say, if I'm not challenging my own assumptions, then I am actually going to end up remaining static. And if I remain static, then I'm really moving backwards. Um, mm-hmm. But I, no, I think it is extremely challenging. But I, I, I think that we, we have to understand uh, Valerie Cower in her book, See No Stranger, which if you are uh, you, an, an epic reader, if you haven't read that one, you should read it. It's an amazing I have, book. but
0: I'm writing it down right now.
1: Oh, excellent. Yeah, she, she Valerie Cower is just tremendous in that book and she's a Sikh civil rights activist and mm. she writes in that book that you are a part of me I do not yet know. That's that's the mm. phrase that she repeats throughout the book and it's it what it basically means is that I may not understand why your future is is important to mine, but it is and I will find that out some point point. and until then I have to invest in your story. You know, I have to show you that I care about your humanity. It doesn't mean that I accept all of who you are, you know, and but it means I accept you have a right to be to be, you know, and I think there's a big difference there. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like you're you're not accepting intolerance or hate or exclusion when you have conversation, you know, and I think that's one really difficult thing that a lot of people tend to think that if you listen, then you're accepting or you're validating and that's not the case.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i i actually just the other day i read it in a day was uh rising out of hatred it's the story of derek uh derek black who uh Mm -hmm. he was part of the white nationalist movement he was like they're supposed to be the next uh you know big guy in there and and he he went away from it and oh and that I think that book 's just incredible about you know these conversations and and not accepting hate you know because there are people who are you know white nationalists or you know uh, yeah. they hate certain religions or you know and all these all these things and and it 's difficult for even those conversations and you know yeah. i 'm curious if if your experience with this book like did you did you encounter anybody who's gone through like just a change by having these conversations or mm. or getting the help yeah. of you know bridge builders and all that did it give you some yeah. hope that <laughs> yeah. this can happen yeah. Yeah, I think a good example would be
1: someone like Bob Inglis, who is the Republican, former Republican congressman from South Carolina, still a Republican, I should say, just former congressman. Yeah. Um, but he's a proud Republican, you know, and uh, and yet he has become a really vocal advocate for the need to take action on climate change. Mm. And the way that happened is not because someone argued him into it or he saw some, you know, zinger of a tweet. It's like, oh, yeah, I changed my mind based on that. No, that, that doesn't happen. You know, it's yeah. like. What, he's, what what happened was he uh, had relationships with members of his family and then a friend in Australia who basically showed him how caring about climate change does not require you to be an earth worshiper. You know, as a Christian, you know, he's yeah. like, I always thought that if I was going to care about the environment, then I was like somehow worshiping the earth. And that goes counter. To who I am as a Christian, mm. and he said, "No, I can. I can care. I can be more of a steward of the earth because you know the Bible talks about stewardship, and it does. And you, if you focus on words like stewardship, unless I'm focused like, mm-hmm. do I believe in climate change? That's a tough word for a lot of people of faith because if you're asking them to believe in something, you know, say, I believe in this, I believe in in this God or this you know deity here, but I, I can't. So I can't believe in that. Well." Maybe it's about just, you know, building these relationships between people who aren't like each other and saying, actually, you can, I can help show you my perspective instead of sort of preaching at you and telling it to you. And so mm-hmm. he has completely changed. He is now going throughout the country. He's gotten tens of thousands of Republican conservative members of his group, dues-paying members, who are saying, we are going to try to convince our legislators or the people who are like us to take action. And I find that really interesting because he's building bridges with people who are like him. And, and I think that that's actually sometimes the way that we can actually make change in some of the most difficult issues. It's like, okay, maybe someone in the far left can't reach someone on the far right, but you may be able to reach someone who's kind of on the fringes who then can reach someone else. And, you know, I think that Mm -hmm. it's like, you can't build a bridge across an ocean, you know, but sometimes the, the divides we think are oceans are actually rivers.
0: Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And that's something that in, you know, uh, I try to think about like I'm I'm half black and I, you know, I see these issues and people, you know, on my side of the family the uh, you know, my black side of the family have struggled sure. with some of these racial issues in the United States. And you know, so I'm always reading, like I will read, like, you know, I'll read Robin D'Angelo, I'll read Ruby's sure. Kendi and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, maybe maybe some, maybe some parts are like really far left, but it's like, yeah. how do we how do we talk and get and, and start? moving a little bit more this way so we can actually have conversations and not just shut someone out so yeah i I love that example because sometimes it's like someone on the inside has to kind of have that that change um and there's always someone and
1: there's always someone on on the edge you know someone on the fringe who is willing to engage you know i Mm -hmm. think we have this perception that use the word tribalism it's like we have this perception that people in the other tribe are never going to engage but there's always someone who's sort of, out, who's a little bit more on the edge, who's a little bit more curious, mm. and maybe you can reach that person and maybe that person can can help bring about change. I think that mm-hmm. that it, it is, and we can talk about that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very um, true believer in the, the fact that people can change, you know? And if oh, you yeah. look at it, Americans have changed a lot over the years. It and, and that includes recently. I mean, if you look at, for example, an issue like gay marriage, in 2005, I think the number is in Gallup poll 30%, only 30% of Americans believed in marriage equality for, you know, people of the same sex in, in 2005, only 15 years later, that number up to 70%, you know, some from 30 to 70% in only 15 years, that mm-hmm. was a really contentious social issue that if you had told someone in 2005, the country's going to change its mind about this issue in 15 <laughs> right. years. They'd say, I, I can't possibly believe that. And it, what I think it demonstrates in a lot of cases, there are obviously your exceptions that people change their minds because they had relationships with people. They realize I have family members who are part of the LGBTQ community, or I have a friend and they, they were sort of exposed to the fact that, you know what, these, these, those relationships matter to them. Mm-hmm. And when, and because they had those relationships, then they started to change their mind on this, these issues, you know, and, mm. and I, I don't think it was because someone wrote a good op-ed, <laughs> like,
0: Yeah.
1: you know, it was because you had a friendship or something with people. And I talk about a friendship in the book where someone did change his mind on that issue. And it, you know, I think it, it matters.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's one of the things, you know, uh, you know, there's so many books coming out too, about how we're, you know, becoming just like more isolated because of social media and not making connections and stuff like that. And I, I like, I'm still pretty much an introvert. Like I, I live in Las Vegas and I never go out, but I do try to connect with people and just have conversations because I do think that that's one of the biggest eye openers for, for us. You know what I well, mean? Well, you
1: probably save a lot of money by not going out in Las oh, Vegas.
0: No, <laughs> since I got sober, I am basically a rich man. No. <laughs> But yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, and and yeah, but I still, you know, I still like talk to my friends who I grew up with yeah. and try to meet other people and stuff, but it doesn't have to involve, you know, all the partying and craziness. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, so so when we're talking, uh, I, I want to go back to like when we're talking about like the tribalism type thing, yeah. right? And I'm curious if your experience shed any light on this, um, because... One of the things that I've I've realized, you know, I've talked to some uh, in, uh, some people who deal with like conspiracy theorists and client, uh, like uh, right. science deniers and stuff, yes. and a lot of it has to do with this group identity, right? Like, if yes. I let go of this, yes. then it hurt. It can hurt my group, or I might be not part of my group. So, right. from from the you know writing this book and looking at it in all areas, whether it's politics, religion, or you know views, do you think it's better or easier to build bridges with individuals or groups? Like, am mm. I going to get someone to start changing their mind if they're with yeah. their people? You know yeah. what I mean? Because that yeah. seems a little bit more difficult. What do you, what do you- Oh, mean?
1: it's a really important question. I couldn't agree it is really central to the issue. And I, and I, but I think most people don't really grasp that because, um, because for most people, you still tend to think that the facts matter and the truth matter, (laughs) but I have to say that a lot of times it doesn't. And that is very difficult for me as a professional journalist to acknowledge, you know, like I I work, I've worked, you know, for my whole career in an industry in which I'm dedicated to validating the facts, reporting the truth, telling authentic stories. But that's often not enough because if the truth is contradictory to your group identity, then Mm -hmm. And you are not going to be willing, oftentimes, to engage with it. You are—it's—it's it's much more costly to you as an individual to acknowledge the truth than it is to remain loyal to your group. So that's what you're—you're you're speaking to, of course. Now, mm-hmm. in terms of the question about how do we do we engage with the group or the individuals, I have not seen a lot of very successful examples of people trying to engage, uh, trying to sort of engage with the group and change the group. I think. It, because I, I don't see in the social media age, which you talked about, mm-hmm. much top down change going on I, I, I in a sense that, uh, well, in a positive direction, I see it more than negative, direction, <laughs> right. you know, and um, it, it's pr- it, you see more, especially in politics, that the politicians are only going to change if the people change. You know, I, I, I think going mm. back to gay marriage, I think that that was a good example. I think people changed and then the politicians changed, you know, and I think. And I don't, and I know that's an argument, you know, I, I, my perspective in this book is pretty firmly on the people probably have to change before the politicians will change. Mm-hmm. But it's, that it'll go the other way because we don't really live in a world of like the 1960s when John F. Kennedy could give a speech and say, ask now what your country would do for you, you know, ask what, or, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, I, I think that that, that is, I, I would like to live in a world where we could have like a leader who would just inspire us to change, you know, that I would mm-hmm. like to live in that world. But I think that world is gone most for the most part because of the fractionalization of media and the fact that it's so difficult to get people's attention. And we do live in this tribalized world. I just don't see like voices from the top really changing things. Now, I do think Joe Biden has done a good job of dialing down the temperature, for example. And I think yeah. things like that matter. They, they can help. I don't think that it's enough necessarily to, to bring them up broader
0: cultural change yeah so so that that brings up some you know just a million other things in my mind like I I definitely agree it it, because it seems it seems to just that politicians pander to the people right like when we're yeah. talking about you know voter fraud and you know those conspiracies and all that it's you know they they walk this fine line of like plausible deniability where like someone like marjorie taylor green for example she won't straight up say like i believe in QAnon conspiracies but she'll say right. things to make sure that those people vote for her and same thing with like you know trump and you know right. there, there's people on the left who do it too so Here's, here's a question I have for you because it, it involves politicians because we've seen, you know, them actively using social media as well. But where, where do you think social media plays a role in this? Like, do you think, here's, here's what I want to ask. Do you, think, do you think social media has any place to help build bridges? Like, do you think it's possible to have a conversation yeah. with someone in a tweet, in a Twitter thread, or something yeah. like that? Or, or what should we do if we want to have a conversation instead? Yeah, I, I think
1: it's it's a really important question, in, and and I would say I think that the way social media has changed society is one of the most significant challenges of our lifetime. You know, and I and we're not going to outlive it. It's going to exist long after we are gone. And so the question is, how do we engage with it as as individuals? And I, I, I talked about someone from my second book, actually, after the fact, who sort of said, I don't think we have had enough time yet as a society to really understand how much it has changed things. He pointed to when the uh, printing press was introduced, it took decades for people to all of a sudden adjust to the fact that information was available to so many people who didn't have it before. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like now the 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 powers of information communication and and the, the the pulpit, you know, the platform is available to people who didn't have it before. And I think we haven't adjusted to that as a society. And so we probably have to give ourselves a little bit of a, little bit of grace in that perspective that we, because especially we don't like teach it in schools, how to uh, actually engage with social media, (laughs) but, So I think that's one thing to start having a conversation about is maybe we need to start at the very basics, which is schools. But in terms of whether social media can be used in a good way, I do think it can. Um, But I will say, I, I do think it's extremely difficult. I will say this, for this book, I was determined to do at least one chapter in which I featured a group or someone who was using social media to bring people together. I was I was absolutely determined. Yeah. It was the most difficult subject I could to find. I mean it was like the most difficult cuz it just left Finally, you know, networking with uh, journalists I knew who pointed me to this group, you know, really organic um, group that has developed called the Everyday Projects, mm-hmm. which has basically formed these Instagram accounts throughout the con- throughout the world. Started with Everyday Africa, a couple journalists in Africa, just basically posting basic photos. of, for example, someone getting a cup of coffee, someone going up an elevator, someone fixing a car, just very basic mundane elements of of bi- daily life that people on the other side of the world can recognize to see. you know what? I get a cup of coffee every morning. I go up the elevator every day. I get Mm -hmm. my car fixed. And it connects you as a human to someone on the other side of the world and says, you know what? Maybe we're a little bit more alike than we realized. And, And even despite our differences, which you can actually grow to appreciate when you understand we have some shared humanity. And I think they're kind of paving the path for how social media can be used in a more productive way. Mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of followers so people are actually interested in this like they they like it they get it the lesson i think for people in who are who are in control of accounts for example that have lots of followers is show images that actually aren't sensational you know show things that are daily life and and be very mindful of the diversity and the imagery that you're putting out there and but actually be very intentional about saying I can use this platform to actually not necessarily show the highlight reel of daily life, but show the authentic images of what life is really like, Mm -hmm. because that's where you can actually form true lasting connections.
0: Yeah. So, so just, just to have, you know, the, the cynical Chris come out real quick. Like I think about, I think about incentives, right? Like what is incentivizing somebody to do things? So just off the top of my head, like if I'm thinking of stuff that Ted Cruz puts on Twitter, what is Ted Cruz's incentive to post just like, hey, look, people on the left and the right, we're all getting coffee, right? You know what I mean? Like, and and think like, what is his incentive? Like if he had to weigh the pros and cons of, do I do this and like just these pictures of people like, and so we can connect or do I really pander to, to my base and say, don't take away our guns, you know, (laughs) like all, and like, you know, immigration and all these other things. Like, so how do we incentivize people like that with such large platforms? Where, where is that for them?
1: Yeah. I I think the fact that social media companies profit off of division, you know, they Mm. profit from tearing people apart is, you know, is a structural issue that is obviously not going away anytime soon and is the reason why this is so difficult you know it's why i don't think i have a good answer for you you know mm-hmm. and i think it's important to say that you know a lot of these things are are going to remain i actually am very purposeful about saying and i don't really say it in the book but i, I mention mentioned it that I'm not necessarily saying i'm optimistic about the country's future <laughs> i actually i'm not sure that i am what i'm trying to do with the book is to say here's what a better path might look like. And I can't say with kind of any degree of confidence, I think things will get better because of what you just said. The fact that, yeah, you know what, social media is designed to divide us in a lot of ways. So I guess the only two options that I see are somehow completely redesigning the incentive structure for social media, which I don't see how that happens uh, in this democratic capitalistic society. I mean, will happen that i'm not thinking of that so people who are smarter than me will think of or (laughs) the people have to change and to disincentivize that sort of behavior and and i that's why i i I focus so much on grassroots organic people who are, are leading organic movements to try to actually bridge these differences and then undermine that sort of rhetoric
0: Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting because I think, I think people, people like us, we can, we can think about how difficult that road is, but I think just you writing that book, you have to be an optimist. And, and you mentioned earlier, like, people change, like I am the biggest advocate for people changing, like nine years ago, I was a drug addict who was dying and, you know, wasn't even allowed to see my son. And like today I get to, you know, at the time of recording this, I get to pick him up. We're gonna go see Black Widow in the theaters, (laughs) you know, and stuff like like that. So I am optimistic. It's just, it's such a challenging, road ahead and I think you touched on something earlier where it's going to come from like the people right and conversations that we're all having and hopefully books like yours get the attention that they deserve but you know um just for the last little bit here I really I you know I I think it's a great time to shift gears like I really want to dive into the solutions so so um do you have any kids by chance I do not no okay well somehow I still want to see Black Widow then
1: yeah (laughs) yeah
0: definitely I'll let you know how it is um but like what, what do you think like uh schools can do even though you're not a parent do you think there's anything that yeah. you know uh yeah. k through 12 or even colleges because there's a lot of polarization on college campuses and not yeah. letting people speak and stuff like that like you know if if i just waved a magic wand and said okay nathan is in charge of schools what do we do how yeah, do we decrease no, polarization well it probably wouldn't be good for me to be in charge of school <laughs> that much,
1: the, uh, but uh but Because then we'd probably all have, we have all we'd have is classes on uh, journalism, for example, because right. I think that that is actually one of the ways that we can start to, to think about actually mm. reorienting people's perspective is, for example, you start with, you know, uh, well, let me back up and say, I, I let me back up first before I get to that and say, one thing I really wanted to do with this book is to talk about solutions on a broader scale, because yeah, the book is focused largely on more grassroots individual to individual Mm -hmm. efforts. But I wanted to draw from that. What are some of the things that we could apply on a a larger scale? Because I understand that that is something that's, that's obviously essential to this, that we can't really wait. We don't have time to wait for grassroots efforts to somehow pick up (laughs) cultural speed. But I think if the premise of building relationships between people of difference if you believe that that is the way to build bridges, which by the way, there's a lot of science on that too. Don't really get into it in the book, but because um, my, my strength as a journalist is telling stories, you know, yeah. I'll let the academics talk about the studies as much, but contact theory, if your listeners are interested in exploring that further is what you Google to, to read about how when people actually meet someone who's not like them scientifically, they're more likely than to actually soften their views toward that person and their, and the issues that they confront. So there is science there, but, I think if we believe that this is something that will actually help, then we say, how do we use our institutions to start to integrate this culture of relationship building between people who aren't like each other? And I think schools is where you start because mm-hmm. I think that, you know, listen, maybe adults are lost cause, you know, like <laughs> maybe you and I, like, yeah. but. I think we can agree that our our kids probably aren't, you know, that it's still time, there's still time for them as they're forming their their worldview to think differently. And I think that you can do things like, listen, we live in this remote video, you know, Zoom video culture now where kids are working remotely. Now I know they're going back to school, but but I think in the future now we see, well, why can't, you know, this student in this classroom in this district do a project with this student in this district who's much Mm -hmm. different than them, you know? Uh, we, we unfortunately live in a country in which schools are pretty segregated by race and class and culture and, oh, you know, yeah. and, and it's like, but you know what, actually we, we don't need to accept that just because the system is the way it is. Maybe you know, we should revolutionize the system, perhaps until then, you know, we probably should do something else. And I think, I think we can actually uh, start to do things like class projects where with people, kids who aren't like each other, because you know what, that's when they'll actually start to understand a little bit more someone who's not like themselves in college i I have this very strange um view that students shouldn't be allowed to room with uh people that they've self-selected in their freshman year and there are some colleges that are not not allowing it anymore which i think is probably a good thing the washington post put it this way they basically said when kids get to pick who their own roommates you know what the white kids tend to the rich white kids tend to find the rich white kids you (laughs) know what I mean? And that's not going to help us. Like, how is that going to help? And so, um, and, and so, I, I think again, there's there's a study that showed that you know actually when uh, college kids, uh, white kids, end up meeting kids, uh, students of color, they actually tend to often uh, to um, to change their perspectives. Their their views uh, are, are are different. And again, there's research that shows these kinds mm-hmm. of things matter. College is so rife right now with so much tension. Maybe the place to start isn't to say what do we do about this person can speak or this person can speak? How do we start in the very grassroots level to say when you're in the dorm, like if you, if you're living with someone who's not like you, maybe that's where you get to appreciate the other person. And you know, listen, there's one bridge that can never be, be divided, Chris. And that's between, morning people and night people <laughs> but uh <laughs> right. so that part they have to be conscious of but uh but aside from that there's a lot of other differences we can we yeah can break.
0: yeah it, it's interesting we don't have the time to get into all the weeds <laughs> of this but like uh i recently there was a it was there was a story that was getting some uh uh, some coverage in Florida where DeSantis was talking about college students needing to have like their political affiliation and you know and stuff like yeah. that and and people were seeing all the negative but kind of like what you're talking about like imagine if you know freshmen come in and one's more liberal leaning one's more conservative you can take that data put them together so it could yeah. be used for good or but people's fear is that they could take that and Punish or you know do yeah. something like that so yeah. so it's weird and you know that that just gets to a whole conversation of trust do we trust the people who mm-hmm. are taking this information sure. and and all that but uh, you you were about to hit on something about why journalism is such an important topic for kids yeah. to learn about yeah. and 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 mm-hmm. I've had. I've had scientists and conspiracy debunkers on here. My son is 12 and I'm always just trying to get him to look at things and fact check things and not yeah. believe everything he reads. He's surprisingly yeah. good at it, but I, I you're the first journalist I've had who's kind of mentioned this and and you yeah. mentioned earlier how you're all about like, you know, truth and stuff like that. So, of what how would this benefit kids learning about aspects of journalism in school? Yeah, I think it's really crucial because students don't really learn about
1: journalism or news reporting in school, high school or college. I mean, and I had the privilege in high school in Michigan of taking in my newspaper class. And that's one of the ways I got into journalism. And, you know, but I think unfortunately we don't really teach a, we don't teach the skills of news gathering and we, mm. b. we don't teach, uh, an appreciation or an understanding for what journalists do. Um, I, I think that what we should do is invest in basic journalism education in our high schools. Why? Because who, what, where, when, why, and f- source validation, you know, fact authentication is actually a skill you need to be a citizen now. This right? is not something yeah. like you can rely on a professional journalists to do for you in all cases anymore because oftentimes they're not there. I mean, I worked for a very small publication, like public you know, circulation, like 5,000 when I started my career and I was covering these little you know, township meetings where they're t- debating like gravel quarry mining regulations <laughs> and stuff like that. And I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. But um, but the point was I, maybe I didn't know what was happening, but I was there and I was forming those relationships with the community members. Um, but I, you know, what? I actually recently reached out to the township supervisor there, and she mm. told me nobody covers them anymore. You know, because the journalists have been completely decimated in that area, and so you know, so that means that we as citizens have to be kind of responsible in a lot of ways for our own news consumption, and we're not teaching people how to do that. You know, and and but actually. You basically got to be a journalist essentially is what you got to be. You know, you got to then to gain information on your own. A lot of people don't know how to do that. Not being condescending, just sort of, this is how it is. And I understand because historically they could rely on professionals to kind of do it for them. Like if you live in 1982 America, it's like mm-hmm. you pay a quarter for the newspaper and they're pretty much, you know, filtering the world and that you you don't have to, you don't encounter much misinformation. I mean, you can find it if you really look hard back then, but it's so Mm -hmm. much easier now. And that's why we have to talk about what do we do uh, in our schools?
0: Yeah, no. And I'm sure uh, with you being a journalist, uh, (laughs) I don't know if it drives you nuts, but something that I see a lot is just with social media and influencers. And there's a lot of people who, you know, they 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 cover news or they cover stories and they have no journalistic background. So they're not yeah. bound to any any kind of standards of like integrity. And some of it's not even with ill intention, but they hear something and then they make a YouTube video that gets hundreds of thousands of views and they they, they don't answer to an editor or a publication or anybody to fact check their yeah. stuff. So, so yeah, personally, like, it's something that I do regularly. Like when I hear something, I'm always like, I try to be a little bit skeptical. I'm like, who's saying this, where'd they get the information from? Did they provide a source? Is it a value? Is it a valid source? You know, like, yeah. for example, right. my girlfriend and I were just talking about, um, you know, some of the news and updates around the Delta variant, right? Like we're both vaccinated and, you know, there's some different information and stuff. So this morning I spent a little time like doing a little bit of research and all that. Um, But, but yeah, so, so last, last question I have for you here, I'm just going to, here's how I'll ask it. You're going to give me advice. So I come across somebody, I won't make it hard for you, so I won't say social media. I come across somebody on the street, right? We completely okay, uh-huh. disagree, right? I'm very left leaning, they're very right leaning and I just wanna yeah. scream and shake them. What is, what is the best thing that I could do and all the listeners, like if we wanted to start building a bridge and finding an understanding whether it's on like immigration policy, whether it's on healthcare reform, whether it's on abortion, just something like really intense. How, yeah. do, I, how do I start with building that bridge?
1: Well, I, I would say it's it's actually pretty straightforward. I would start with listening first and speaking second. You know, I think that it starts with that. And I, I want to be clear, and you know, I'm not saying that you listen to hate necessarily, you know, that's really a different, you know, thing altogether, mm-hmm. you know, white supremacists or something like that. That's a different category. But but for the areas of, of life where there is room for some perspective, even if it's small room, you know, I think that it starts with listening because when this is, again, pretty well demonstrated, both anecdotally and scientifically, that when you listen to someone else's story, you under, you actually invest in, in who, who they are and you are just absorbing what they're talking about, then they're more likely to care about you. Mm. And, and I think that's what's so interesting that To build bridges with other people can actually be a very selfish activity to say, (laughs) I actually want to accomplish something myself. There's something I care about. Maybe you want to do something about climate change, for example. You may have to listen to someone talk about the other perspective first before you can share yours because there it's, again, pretty well demonstrated that oftentimes after they get a chance... To talk about themselves, then they're much more open to listening to you, and mm-hmm. that just is so countercultural, you know. To say because so much, so often we want to talk and not listen, you know, and mm-hmm. that's probably one of find the- ourselves in this situation. But you know, a lot of people just want to be heard, and I'm sure you've seen this in your work, you know, in addictions. It's like mm-hmm. a lot of people just want to be you to acknowledge that you see them, you know, and once you do that a lot of times they'll soften toward you. And and that's mm-hmm. what I find to be such a dynamic um, dichotomy.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I absolutely love that. It's something that I had to get used to. Like, like you mentioned, especially, you know, from my addiction background and working yeah. in treatment, I just had to sit there and let people tell their stories. And I think that was the biggest eye-opener for me is just, Oh wow! No wonder why you started abusing substances, you know, based on you know your traumas. Sure. But even you know, speaking to someone, you know, and understanding their religious beliefs, or their upbringing. Now I can better understand their political beliefs. And like you said, like I, I truly believe that a lot of us just we have at least this much narcissism in us, right? And we love talking <laughs> about ourselves. Yeah. So if you're willing to listen, like yeah. you'll be their best friend. But <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, one last thought for you, Chris, which is to get to circle back to the fact that I think people really can change, you know, and I, and I, I think it's like, okay, you can listen to, Rocky Balboa, you know, like Rocky four, he's like, you know, if you can change, I can change, No, we all can change. He says at the end of the movie where he basically ends the Cold War, which is a certifiable (laughs) fact, by the way, Uh, that's how the Cold War ended. But, um, (laughs) but no, if you don't, if you don't take it from Rocky, it's like, take it from the Reverend Dr. Uh, Alvin Edwards, who is the pastor of the uh, Mount Zion African Baptist Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, who I met for this book. Mm -hmm. And I, I asked him, you know, he's working on really tough issues racial reconciliation you know religious reconciliation in charlottesville 2017 you know and but he's a black man who's also dealt with for his whole life with the legacy of jim crow slavery Mm -hmm. you know and i said i said how do you maintain faith that people can change and he said you know i have to believe that people can change because if i don't then that's a belief that i can't change and i can't accept that and i said what a dynamic perspective to say he's not looking through people at people through the lens of who they are he's looking at them through the lens of who he is and who he wants to be and i think mm-hmm. that is the approach that that we all want to take as individuals
0: i absolutely yeah. love it so so nathan thank you again so much for your time and for everybody out there who was just introduced to you? Where where can they get the book, and yeah. where can they find you? Uh, you know, because you are a journalist, and so how can they keep up yeah. with all your other projects? Where where can they look for you? At? Well, I appreciate that, and you can certainly follow me on Twitter at Nathan
1: Bomey B O M E Y. That's where my my Twitter is, and uh, or that's where the book is listed. You can certainly find it there, but it, it is in Barnes and Noble, it's on Amazon, you know, of course, um, independent stores. Honestly, I just appreciate anyone who buys this book because. Yeah, you're supporting my journalism, but you're also supporting a publisher that has decided to publish this book because you know, you know, it's like so many books try to do the exact opposite. They're trying to tell people (laughs) apart, profiting off of that. Probably, why I'm not going to get rich off this one. You know, it's like uh, pretty sure this is not going to be my bestseller, but that's okay because the point is to start a conversation Mm -hmm. to say, you know, we need to have we need to talk about this because I could have come, uh, I probably should have been the the smarter DC journalist who wrote about. Uh, like all the problems, you know, but, uh, but I wanted to do something a little bit different. And, um, and I'm Chris, it means
0: a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I'll make sure to link all that stuff down in the description below. So thank you once again, Nathan, and I'm I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. All right, folks, there you have it. There's my conversation with Nathan Bomey. And how cool of a guy is he? I had such a blast talking with him. He's like a nice guy. I love it when I get to talk to authors and they're super nice. And don't get me wrong, it's not like any authors I've had on have been like absolute jerks or anything like that. But yeah, like uh, Nathan and I got to talk a little bit before and after and everything. But anyways, anyways, make sure you're following him over on Twitter. Get a copy of this book. Get some more copies. Give them to people uh, in your life. After you read it so we can start building these bridges as he talked about in this and it's something I've actually been trying to do more and more um, since our conversation Uh, as, as you heard towards the end of that that conversation we were talking about you know the importance of just listening Right. And yeah, I I remember, you know, back when I first got sober, just them telling me to shut up for three months, kind of how they do in that be the bridge organization and all that. But, you know, conversations are important, but a lot of times we don't get anywhere because we're not listening to the other side. So make sure you grab a copy of his book. There's some great stories in there and we didn't even touch half the stuff and half the stories. Like I said, Nathan got into some uncomfortable situations and I like felt anxious for him. So it's a really good book. So go out there, go support it and check it out, all right? But anyways, don't forget to follow me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And if you're new to the podcast or if you're not new but you keep coming back and you haven't followed or subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do that real quick and if you're over on Apple, if you're listening to this on Apple, take two seconds, leave a rating and a review, and also share it with people you know. Why, why do I ask you to do this? It's simple. We're a newer podcast, it helps get the word out. The algorithm's like, oh man, people are rating this and reviewing it and following it. Holy crap, they're they're sharing it with people they know. This must be legit. So then they go and distribute it out to even more people. And we get to talk about these awesome books, learn new things, and figure out how to have better conversations and think a little bit better about the world, all right? But for all of you loyal followers out there who would like to support the podcast in any way, there's some links down below. Uh, You can get some of my mental health books over at TheRewiredSoul.com that I've personally written. You can become a patron, and there is also an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. One of my personal issues with having these conversations was I used to have a lot of anger issues, and aside from 12-step programs, therapy helped me a ton, and I've personally used... BetterHelp Online Therapy. So if you wanna check that out, there's an affiliate link down below. It's, It's affordable, easy to use, do it from the comfort of your home, all that good stuff. All right, but anyways, make sure you go check out my social media and see who the upcoming guests are for next week. We got some exciting stuff coming up and I thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this conversation with Nathan. I hope you have an awesome rest of your day. If you're listening to this on Friday, have an amazing weekend and I'll see you next time.